Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osman, here with my friend, Chabruta Ann Gordon. Our DAP today, Masachi Kiddushin, DAP Nun Bet, page 52. Well, the Gemara wants to do the deep dive on this story that appears in the uh, Mishnah about five women who are given this basket of dates. Uh, two of the women are sisters, and the conclusion of the Mishnah is, is that uh, three of the women uh, have successfully completed Kiddushin with the man, but the two sisters do not. And so Rav makes the following comment about this story. I'm a Rav. Arba. So he says we can basically learn four halachot from this Mishnah. The Nakit Rav Tlat. But Rav only took three in his hand. In other words, of the four things that he thought you could learn, he only accepted three of them, but the fourth one he didn't accept. So what are the first three that he accepted? The first is that we can infer because the Mishnah specifically says that the dates were Shvi'it, that somebody can use for Kedushin uh, produce from the Shvi'it year, and that that is a valid, uh, you know, object to give that's a Shava Pruta, that's worth a Pruta, to make the Kedushin valid. We can also infer from here that the Mishnah, if someone does Kedushin with a stolen uh, object, then it is not Kedushin. Afilu begezel dida even if he uses uh, something that is her stolen item. In other words, he steals something from her and then gives it back to her in Kedushin. The reason why they learned this is, is that when you first see the detail of, of Shvid, you're like, why exactly is that detail there? Um, and the reason is, is because Shvid produces basically hefgar. It's ownerless. So you can take Shvid produce and use it. But the idea, therefore, is, is then obviously something that was stolen wouldn't be okay. Um, and so they're going to explain this a little bit more. Mima, right? Because the Mishnah teaches that the fig, I kept saying dates, excuse me, it was figs, uh, that the figs um, uh, were, uh, you know, belonging to a woman uh, that were grown during Shvid. Tama uh, de Shvid, why could a man use this fruit that belonged to the woman uh, during Shvid? Because it's hefker. So therefore, what we can infer here is that fruit that was grown during any of the other parts of the Shvid cycle, right, when the fruit would have actually belonged to the woman itself, he could not have used that fruit to do Kedushan because it would have been stolen from them. So that's why that detail of the Shvid is actually very important. And then what's the next one? We can also learn that a woman can be an agent for her uh, for her, uh, you know, for her friend, for, you know, even in a situation where she becomes her rival wife, right? So that in other words, when a man wants to do Kedushan with two or more women, um, the, the brides basically could appoint one person in their group to accept the Kedushan for all of them. And the way the Gemara understands this is, is because all the unrelated women in this group were considered to have Kedushan done, and when the way the Mishnah presents it, it's that like Kedushan was accepted by the group itself, okay? Even though those three women will now become Tzarot, they will become rival wives. So those are the three laws that we say that Rav accepted, the three halachot that Rav accepted. What's the fourth one that he didn't? V'idach mahi. What's the other one? Kedushan she'en misurin levia, right? Is back to our, you know, Rav Abay Machlokas, Kedushan that does not lend itself to via right, is not a Kedushan. 
And so the Gemara asks, Benit Chashra, right? So why should, Rav should include this one also. Why does he leave this one out? Mishum to misfekale Because he really wasn't sure how you should read the Mishnah. Should it be according to Abai or according to Rabbah? Now, what, what's interesting about this is, is that from a chronological point of view, Rav lives well before Abai and Rafa, right? He lives before them. So when we say how you read the Mishnah according to Abai, according to Rava, it doesn't necessarily mean that Rav thought of it as the opinion of Abai or the opinion of Rava. What he's more is, is that Rav understood that there were multiple ways to read that Mishnah. Later on, we ascribe those multiple ways as one being the opinion of Abai and one being the opinion of Rava. But I think this last point here is a classic example where sort of the chronology of the um, rhyme, and sometimes we see this with Tanayim, sort of don't count. We refer to it by a person's opinion, even though that person lived after the time of the person who's giving the consideration of that opinion. So very often, right, they mix and match, mix and match the generations in a way that, I don't know, it's kind of innocuous, especially if you don't know enough to be able to, you know, parse that out. Um, you know, and I'm always grateful when you remind us of these things, Yodana. But I feel like in this case, it's a little more startling because when you're talking about Rav and Abai and Rava, meaning you're not talking about names that are kind of not heard so much and so we don't really know and it the generational factor is less of a of a thing. Here I feel like I'm a little surprised that they do this in this way. Yeah, it is interesting. And again, right, you need to know the people well to understand that they're doing it. Um, but again, I think it's more that just that reading becomes associated with the opinion of a buyer, the opinion of Rabbah, not that necessarily they were the first people to come up with it. Right, right. That's a fair point. Um, okay, I want to move on. I want to touch briefly on the towards the top of them. I bet we have some more, you know, stories or cases, right, where we have Kiddushin in some unusual and perhaps not so effective ways, right, where one man comes along and grabs a few dinarim from another person and then throws them to a woman and says, you're betrothed to me, right? So the question is, like, did that work? You know, and it's not even clear that he had, that he owned those dinarim to be able to use them for betrothal, right? You can't really go get betrothed on a stolen item. And another case, right, where somebody uses a handful of onions that were taken from a field where he works, he's going to try to betroth that way. And all of these cases come before Reva, which is, you know, they're, they're very, it does make great, a great deal of sense that they're together on the page. I'm only rushing through them for the sake of getting to other things on the page, not because I don't think they're interesting. I think they're fascinating. Um, each one of them, you know, is going to be a little bit different. And so lastly, for our purposes, or for my purposes right now, somebody was making beer from dates, right? And which is known, right? This is one of the things that they did in those days. This was one of the beverages. And we know that some of Chazal were involved also in this process. So and what does he do? He betrothed the woman with the sediment. It's called bifruma, bifruma, from the beer. Meaning, this is not the choice element of beer, right? You know, here take the take the sediments, take the better sediments. You can do a better betrothal with it. And again, the question is, you know, has it been taken without the owner's permission to begin with? Which you know riles up the whole question of whether this uh, kijushin can take effect. Um, okay, I want to move on. What I'm rushing to, of course, is the Mishnah towards the middle, bottom, getting there on Amabet. Amakadesh Bechalko Ben Kodesh Ben Kodeshim 
ben kodashim kalim. So if somebody betrothes a woman with, so this is a Kohen, right? We have a Kohen here who's going to betroth a woman with the portion of the offerings that come to him. Now, the question is, did, did he do so with Kachim Kalim or Kachim Kadoshim? Right? The, how, how consecrated, how holy are the offerings that he's using for betrothal? Regardless, it doesn't matter. You cannot use Kachim for betrothal, right? You cannot offer, a Kohen cannot offer a woman, but you know, like from his. I don't know how to say this, right? The the sanctified portions that go specifically as a gift to the Kohen that we know from all the Trumat and all, all the Maestro and all of the donations to the Kohanim, those are not eligible to be used for Kiddushin. But Master Shani, Ben Shogeg Ben Mezid, Lo Kiddush, Divrei Rebbe Meir. Rebbe Meir says even if you're using Master Shani, which is a matter of sanctity but not a matter of the Kohuna, you also can't use that as for betrothal. Rabbi Huda says that if you didn't realize that you were using uh, Master Shani produce, right, then you can't betroth, meaning you can't do this inadvertently. But if you consciously took that concentrate, consecrated produce that is your own to use, right, you're just supposed to use it bikitusha, with sanctity, with holiness, then in fact he could betroth the woman. And what about consecrated property, meaning something that has been dead? All of these things are consecrated and that they are made holy. But consecration in the hectic term means dedicated to the use of the temple for the temple's treasury, let's say. So again, Rabbi Meir takes that same position that um, if you do it intentionally, then it can take effect. But otherwise, no. Rabbi Huda takes the opposite position. If you unwittingly used um, hektesh as a matter, as an item for betrothal, then that might work, but not intentionally. Meaning, you intentionally, and I don't, and frankly, I find Rabbi Huda's position, actually, I take it back. I find both of the positions that say that betrothal under any circumstances could work here, because why don't we jump up and down and say, this should be me'ila, right? This is a unauthorized use of consecrated property, I suppose the answer is, no, they're telling you exactly how it is an authorized use of consecrated property, you know, such as it is. Okay. Now, the Gemara, of course, is going to pick up some of this, but I want to jump to the, towards the bottom of the daf of the Amud, where we have a discussion after the death of Rabbi Meir. Um, we have, the Gemara has a lot of these stories about the, really, you know, I don't know, I guess the, the loss of Rabbeim makes a good amount of sense, right? That they're going to pay attention to that. Tanu Rabbanan, l'achar p'tiratosha Rabbi Meir, amar lahem Rabbi Yehuda l'talmidav. So Rabbi Meir has died, and Rabbi Yehuda, and again, remember, in the Mishnah here, these are the two um, bar pluktas, these are the people who are having the the disagreement. Rabbi Yehuda says to his students, ali kansu talmidei Rabbi Meir l'kan, mipnei shekantaranim heim. So Rabbi Yehuda says to his students, don't let Rabbi Meir's students come in here because they are contrarian. They are they are troublemakers. They are vexing. Vexatious is the translation I have here. Yerdin, I don't know if you've seen anything else. No, that, that's that, what it is. It's a great passage, <laughs> right? Meaning, like they're 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 gonna poke holes. They're gonna be troublemakers. They're gonna I don't know be nitpicky. We have a lot oh, of I different phrases for this. Different. I think it means something a little different. I think it's a criticism of Rabbi Meir. Rabbi Meir is known to be, sort of be able to like, he mentions very often in the Mishnah, 
but we usually don't give sack like him. And it's sort of in a way saying that like he spews out these halachot, but in a way like his opinions are like, they're kind of like nunniki, like they make sense kind of, but not really. So you're just like, why is this your halacha? And you'll see from later on, I think what the criticism is that like this opinion that they express is a case that could never happen. So then like, why discuss this halacha altogether? So it's let's not, just it's well, not being I, argumentative. It's 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 more being that like uh, I, I understood it more as like an annoyance. Uh huh. Okay. I mean the what I the note I have is etymological from Greek that says it means to prick or to pierce, and so this contranim word seems to be in any case, it, however which way they're making trouble in the Beit Midrash, that's they're going to be the reputation here. I just want to note that. All of everything you said about Rebbe Mayer's views, right, as they are um, upheld but not used for Psak, is when he is named, right? We know that most of the Mishnah, the the Tanakama, most of the time is really following the oh, opinion yes, of Rebbe Mayer. Oh, yes, thank you for qualifying that. That was super important. Yes, we say if we have a Stam Mishnah, meaning a Mishnah with no name, it is Rebbe Mayer, and often we, uh, that is Psak, right? We're talking about when it says Rebbe Mayer's name, the, then we usually don't. We don't usually give that as psak. Okay, so let's go on here with our vexatious Talmidim here, right? These students of Rabbi Meir, who Rabbi who does, doesn't want in the Beit Midrash, sorry, He says they're not coming to learn, like sincerely. Rather, they're coming to um, the again to kind of overwhelm Rabbi Huda with their halachot, with all of their knowledge or with all of their questions or whatever it's going to be. It, it's a, he's calling into question their sincerity as learners in this context. And it, to me, what's particularly striking about this, of course, is that Rabbi Mayer has just died. I don't know if he's just died, but he's died recently enough and that Rabbi Huda is still calling these students, right, the students of Rabbi Mayer. Dachak sumchus, sumchus v'nichnas. But so Sumchus, who was a student of Rabbi Meir, and he's named and identified in different various places in Shas on his own, right? So he comes in, and his name, his very name, and maybe it's, um, what's the word, pseudo-epigraphic, something like that, right? It means somebody who is an ally in a fight, right? Sumchus comes, he enters the Beit Midrash, Amar lahem, kach shanali Rabbi Meir. He says, this is what Rabbi Meir taught me. HaMekadesh b'chelko ben kachikajim Ben Kachikalim, Lokidesh. And right, he's like right back into the throes of the discussion, as far as we were learning it, right? That's in the Mishnah. But Sumcho says that Rabbi Meir taught him directly that betrothing, using offerings, using Karbanot or Kachim, really, um, the, the holy portions, right? It doesn't matter whether they are of lesser or greater sanctity, they cannot be used. And then Kaas Rabbi Hudalahim. And then Rabbi Yehuda becomes angry with his students. Didn't I tell you not to let Rabbi Meir's students in here? Right? Like it's it's as dramatic, and I, I don't know whether this is you know even appropriate from Rabbi Yehuda. It certainly doesn't feel that way in the context of reading it, but perhaps in the reality of it, it made sense. Again, because they are coming here to, they're they're coming here as. These troublemakers. And lastly, he says, 
the halacha is like not relevant at all because how would you ever end up with a woman being in the temple courtyard, meaning to be betrothed with the kachi column or kachi kachi? You know, either way, you're not gonna. It's not appropriate because women can't go into that temple courtyard element, right? The, that part of the Beit Hamikdash, the part of the temple where the kohanim would be eating the, of those offerings. So what do you? What are you like bothering me here? I I feel like this is what a friend of mine used to call a klutz kasha, right? Like you're coming up with cases that don't quite appeal, like don't really have any practical application just for the sake of it. And this is now we understand ex- exactly, Yardina, how you are understanding kantranim and why Rabbi Huda kind of flies off the handle here. And then we have a little bit of like, I don't know, resolution here. Rebiosi says they're going to say Mayor died and Yehuda got angry. Yosi Shatak, Divrei Torah, And then Yosi was quiet, meaning he's saying this about himself. And and what is going to become of the Torah? And he goes on to make the, the question a little more practical, right? Isn't it possible? Isn't it feasible, common for a person, a man, to accept the betrothal on behalf of his daughter in the temple courtyard, meaning the woman doesn't have to be there for the kiddushin to be a relevant question. Couldn't a woman, you know, designate someone to go for, you know, on her behalf into the courtyard? And also, what would it like? What would be the halacha if a woman pushed her way into? I, I love this, right? What would it be if a woman would push her way into the azara and then was given the kiddushin? Meaning, maybe she shouldn't be doing that. But if she were able to do it, then the halacha has to be. We have to know what the halacha would be in that case. Meaning, it's not just pushing an envelope. It's making sure that we know what the halacha would be, regardless of the you know extensive circumstances. I I couldn't love this more. Yeah, I, I think it's a really interesting passage because it shows some of the dynamic. You know, we hear these names and they're mentioned in the Mishnah and and this kind of gives like some, you know, personality to like, did we like them as Talmudim? How were they viewed in the Beit Midrash? Um, it, it does end on a nice note, like although there's an initial criticism of Rabbi Mayer, it, it does end nicely about him. But it really gives uh, some just you know, some nice insight into how these people were viewed and talked about and thought of. That's our DAF discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcast. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think of this DAF. Thank you to Rabbi Nick Michelle Varber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn.